This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be here again today. I mean, there comes a certain point in your life where anniversaries really just mean you're getting old. And, uh, and, and we're thankful that we get to do that at Christian Chapel. Uh, I remember that, that meeting Don described where Angie and I sat. I think Connor was three weeks old when we came to interview at Christian Chapel. I don't know that Angie remembers a moment of that meeting because Connor was three weeks old. Uh, but it, it was uh, just one of those moments where we came not knowing all that God had in store for us. We thought we might be here five to six years, and then pursue whatever was next, and just every season of transition next has always been Christian Chapel, and so we're grateful for that. We're thankful for you, Um, thankful for all the deacons that we've served with over the years, all of the staff pastors that we've been privileged to serve with, and just so many of you. um, We're here still because uh, I don't have any other employable skills, Um, but no, not really. We're actually still here. Because this is where God has planted us, and this place has become like a family to us. Many of you are like extended aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas to our kids, and so thrilled for you. I want to say thanks to Andrew for putting that video together. There's some fun faces in there. Uh, My college basketball coach I hadn't seen in years and had just a moment of PTSD uh, that I was going to have to run after church today. So I also want to say hi. My mom snuck in the back back there. Uh, She told me I don't do videos, but I'll come see you. So uh, thrilled to see her. She snuck in that 830 service. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of unexpectedly seeing your out-of-town mother in a place you're not anticipating. And so again, I immediately PTSD, like assumed I'm in trouble, and I don't know what I did, but I'll find out later. But it turns out this is a a good surprise visit, so thrilled for that, thankful for that, grateful for each of you, and now that all of that is over, let's just get into what really matters today. So we're working our way through the story of Acts. Acts is a story of the early church, and what we've seen is kind of there are three big themes that we see over and over and over again in Acts, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And today we're going to focus on that last one, uh, specifically the church. And what we'll see is that for us to, to effectively be the church, the people of God in the places that God leads us and guides us, we have to recognize that it takes all of us. The story of Acts is the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. It's the story of Stephen and Peter. It's the story of Ananias. It's the story of Barnabas. It's the story of Paul. But mixed in with all of these well-known names, the most common believers we see referred to in the book of Acts are not individuals, but they're just collections of new believers. They're called those who are scattered. We'll see this morning, they are men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They are people whose names and faces have been lost to history, but their stories as first-generation Christians laid the groundwork that our faith continues to be built on today. And so when we say it takes all of us, we're going to explore primarily two ways it takes all of us. Sometimes we are going to be among the anonymous disciples whose names are not known and whose stories are not remembered. And other times we're going to have opportunities to serve in positions of leadership, positions of significant influence, and we have responsibility that comes with that. And what many of us will find in our life, I, I know for me right now, there are, there are spaces where I go 
and I am completely anonymous, and there are places where I go, and I carry responsibility and, and some influence in those areas. And so wherever you are today, and most likely uh, many of you are like me, you, you find yourself in, in both seasons, both situations, just depending on the place and circumstance. What you'll learn from Acts chapter 11 this morning is that no matter if you feel anonymous or if you feel the heavy weight of leadership, God has a purpose and a plan for your life to build his kingdom through you right where you are. And so we're going to start this morning in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It's a we'll work our way down through verse 26. But we'll just kind of take it section by section. In verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And so, again, the, the main characters, James, John, Peter, Paul, people that we know, are all throughout Acts. And yet in Acts chapter 11, the, the primary initial focus is on those who have been scattered and men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And so they're, they're relatively unknown. Their, their stories are important, and we are focusing on them today. And yet, for some reason, Luke chooses not to include their names and to give them individual recognition. And we don't know exactly why that is. It could be that there was such a large group among those who had been scattered, such a large group in those men from Cyprus and Cyrene, that it was impossible to pick one out of the other. It might have been that there were so many names that Luke just didn't have time to list them all when he's writing Acts. Or it could have been that he just felt the most important part of the story was not who they were, but what they did. All we know this morning is Acts 11 presents us with this idea that when we say yes to Jesus at certain times and places, we will take on the identity of anonymous disciples. Right now, now, that is something we want to embrace. It's something we want to enjoy. And yet, culturally, that is something that we are taught from a very young age, you should resist. Right? Again, we've made this joke several times over the years of no one ever announces their birth of a child with, hey, I'd like to welcome a perfectly average little boy into the world. I'd like you to meet my daughter. We have high hopes that she will achieve a normal level of mediocrity. Right? Nobody does that. We talk about, hey, let me introduce you to this little world changer. Let me show you the next president. Let me show you the next governor. Let me show you the next business leader. Nobody's ever like, let me introduce you to the next C student. Let me introduce you to the one who's barely getting out of high school. Let me introduce you to the one we just hope stays out of jail. Right? Nobody does that. We, we celebrate, we elevate, we, we have these lofty expectations, and we carry those then into the church with us at times. And we think, well, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus, but when I say yes to Jesus, I wasn't able to get famous on my own, so maybe I can at least get Jesus famous. Maybe I can get famous in little small Christian circles. Maybe I can get known. Maybe I can get acknowledged. Maybe I can get understood. And yet what we see in the book of Acts is when we say yes to Jesus, fame and discipleship are at odds with each other. If you said yes to Jesus in hopes of building your brand or enlarging your platform, you're ultimately going to get very disappointed and very frustrated. Because he is the one who deserves the glory. He's the one who gets all the honor. He's the one whose story we tell. When we gather together for our staff prayers on Sunday mornings before church, one of our most common prayers is, Jesus, today, will you be the one who's made famous? Will you be the one that people encounter? And will you be the one that people remember? Because we want to understand we are here to reflect the glory of God and to tell the story of God. 
And if we're doing that for our own sake, for our own recognition, then we are limiting the impact of the gospel because we're trying to steal some of that glory and keep it for ourselves. And so Luke, whether he, he does it intentionally or not, even in his introduction of the story by saying just, you know, it was those who were scattered and it was these men from Cyprus and Cyrene. He makes the point that it doesn't matter if people remember your name, but when you attach your life to God's kingdom, your impact will last long after you're gone. And so anonymity does not equal insignificance. Anonymity is just, hey, you know, it's just realistic that within a couple generations of our death, most of our names and stories are going to be forgotten. We're just going to become another name that somebody pays somebody to find one day in some DNA testing that they do, right? You're, we're, most of us are just not going to achieve that, but what the gospel is teaching us is that's okay. Now, when we say anonymous disciples, we, we do want to have the caveat of we may be anonymous to history, but we should not be anonymous in community. And so when, it's not okay to come to Christian chapel week after week, month after month, or year after year, and still feel like you're anonymous in this community. It's not okay to, to come and kind of show up late, leave early, and make sure that nobody knows your name, knows your story, or invites you out to lunch. Right? That's not where we want to be. We want to be a church where we know each other, where we know each other's stories, where we know each other's names, where we care about what each other are going through, but also where we know each other well enough to encourage one another that our only job is to just do the thing Jesus has told us to do and not worry about if we're recognized or not. And so these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, what they model for us is that faithful disciples always pursue obedience over recognition. They're, they're scattered due to persecution, and they initially begin to take the gospel to the Jews, and then a couple of them begin to see some Greeks in the city around them, and they just ask the question, well, what would happen if we told them about Jesus? And so they just begin to step into that space. And when they're stepping into that space, they're not doing it of their own free will and their own volition. But what they're doing it from is out of obedience to the commission that Jesus has given to them. They were told, go into all the world and preach the gospel. They, some of them were likely participants in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. It's possible that some were in the upper room. It's incredibly likely that many of them were among those who were the first converts to Christianity on that day. And as they received this gift from the Holy Spirit, they also received the job of sharing this good news with everyone everywhere, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit so they could share the good news of, with everyone everywhere. And now they go out, and their job is just to do what they're supposed to do. There's a, there's a, a statement that I've heard a lot of basketball coaches make over the years. I've heard some football commentators at a game say it as well, and it's, it's the idea of it takes some Jimmys and Joes to run the X's and O's. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, uh, but kind of the, the context of it, just if you're like, I don't know, X's and I were playing tic-tac-toe, it's not it, right? So uh, in, in basketball or football, when you're drawing up a play, you'll use X's and O's for offense and defense. And so the, the thought behind that saying is you can have a coach who's a brilliant tactician who can draw up the absolute perfect play for the right situation that will result in a basket that will get you the touchdown. But if you don't have the Jimmys and Joes, if you don't have the players on the field or the players on the court, you're not going to be able to fulfill what is being done there. And what we're seeing in Acts chapter 11 is that God has designed the perfect system to spread the gospel all over the world across all of time until Jesus returns. And his plan 
is to call men and women into a relationship with Jesus, to fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit, and then to tell them, now your job, no matter what your job might be, your real job now is to share this good news with everyone everywhere you go. And yet sometimes for us in, in the church, we have heard that command and we've decided, I understand that's what God wants, but maybe just a few really gifted people among us should do it and the rest of us will kind of sit towards the back. And yet I think that's where that principle applies. It still takes in the church, Jimmy's and Joe's, to run those X's and O's that God has designed. I can't do the things God has called you to do. You can't do the things God has called me to do. The early church was not, the, those early church leaders and apostles, they were not the first people to take the gospel to Antioch. It was men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And because they were willing to just do their job, they stepped into the space, they started to tell other people about Jesus, and they witnessed an incredible result. Acts 11 verse 21, it says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And so what, what we see is God works through these anonymous men. We don't know who they are. We don't know what, what they're doing. We don't know exactly how they share the gospel. All we know is that they show up in Antioch, they see some Greeks, some Gentiles who don't know Jesus, and they start to tell them about who he is, and they begin to respond and to submit to Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, and that the fruit that is being planted there in Antioch continues to bear fruit today in our lives as well, because you and I are the outgrowth of this Gentile church that's being established. And so what we see is that in many points of Acts, the primary new movements of ministry come through well-known, well-established leaders in the church. And yet in Acts chapter 11, God does a new thing. God does a big thing through some anonymous disciples. And so again, your anonymity does not mean that you will not be engaged in effective, long-lasting work. In fact, what we're actually seeing in Acts chapter 11 is that sometimes anonymity fuels or accelerates innovation. So if, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, think of, think of the kind of two stories that are being told of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. One is the story we're reading today, the men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And what does God do to tell them to take this, the gospel to the Gentiles? Not much. Right? They have the Great Commission, they have the power of the Holy Spirit, and then they're sent out and they just show up and they see people who don't know Jesus, and so they tell them about Jesus. And so their anonymity, their freedom of the burden of, of leadership, their freedom from, well, what will the Jews in Jerusalem think about this? All of that enables them to just see, there's people who don't know about Jesus, so let's just walk over here and tell them about Jesus. Now, compare that with Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, God is also working in him to make the point that the gospel is for Gentiles. But for Peter, it's not as simple as there's some people across the street, go tell them. Because Peter carries the weight of responsibility. Peter carries the weight of leadership. Peter carries the concern for what will the good Jewish people of Jerusalem who are converting to Christianity think if I go and am in the homes of these uncircumcised Gentiles. And so for Peter, it's not just a matter of there's people who need to know, so I'll just walk across the street and tell them. For Peter, God has to send him a vision. 
to tell him, hey, don't call things impure that I've made clean. So God sends a vision to Peter once, and Peter says, I'm not going to do it. And he sends it twice, and Peter says, I'm not going to do it. And he sends it a third time, and Peter's just kind of quiet that third time. And then God has also arranged a circumstance where he's speaking to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, and giving him a vision of a man named Peter who's going to come and tell him about Jesus. And so all of this complicated circumstance has to happen just so Peter will be willing to enter into a home and tell someone about Jesus. And so what we see is the gospel advances in both ways, both through people in significant leadership roles, but also through anonymous disciples. But I hope what you notice is anonymous disciples accelerate the spread of the gospel because they're not sitting around concerned about, are we going to make people mad? Are we going to make people upset? How does this change happen? How does this change occur? And so my encouragement to you today is that if you find yourself in a season, a place, or maybe just a portion of your life where you feel unseen, unnoticed, or anonymous, instead of viewing that through our cultural lens of insignificance and inferiority, what if you started to view your anonymity as a blessing of, this is a place where I'm just free to tell people about Jesus. This is a place where I can, just, I can just try stuff. And if it works, great. And if not, they don't know my name anyways. So I can just kind of move on with my life. What if you viewed that entry-level position not as proof that you're not important in your career, but what if you viewed that entry-level position as just, I've got a lot of freedom here. What are they going to do, fire me? I'll go get another entry-level position. Like, this is not everything hanging, everything riding on this one thing. If you're new to the neighborhood and you're going on walks around the neighborhood or through the apartment complex at night and you see people are kind of coupled off here and there and you see the little pockets of who gets along, well, you can walk around and think, man, no one likes me. This place is hard to break into. It's just very cliquish. Or you can just kind of decide, I'm new here. They don't know me. If they don't like me, I don't care. So I'm going to be the friendliest person in the neighborhood. I'm going to say hi to everyone. I don't know about the last HOA meeting where that one cussed at that one and now no one likes each other. So I can just be nice to everyone all the time. If you just begin to embrace your anonymity as a gift and begin to operate in these circumstances, that's what these men from Cyprus and Cyrene do. They, they're not worried about what the leaders in Jerusalem are going to say. They're not worried about what the, the religious establishment in Jerusalem is going to, to say about them or feel about them because they're sharing the gospel with Greeks. They just know there's some guys across the street that don't know Jesus. So let's just walk over there and tell them and see what happens. And what happens is they walk across the street, they tell them about Jesus, and there's an amazing move of God among the Gentiles in Antioch. In fact, it grows so large that the church, the leaders in Jerusalem, hear about it, and they begin to decide, hey, we've got to send somebody up there to check out this new work and see what's happening. And so they select a man named Barnabas, they send him down, and, and this is kind of where our story shifts from the anonymous disciples to the more well-known leaders in the early church. Acts chapter 11, verse 22, it says, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So the, the story of the, the church in Antioch, it's not entirely made up of anonymous disciples. When the church in Jerusalem hears about what's happening, they, they select one of their leaders, they send him down. They send Barnabas, who might be the best equipped of the early church leaders to do this. 
His name means the son of encouragement. He's the one that everywhere he goes, he's encouraging others. If you remember back, I believe it was in Acts chapter 8, 9, when Saul is converted, it's Barnabas who kind of takes him under his wing and vouches for him to the early church. We'll see later this morning, it's Barnabas who invites Saul into ministry in Antioch. Barnabas' whole life as an influential leader in the church is wrapped up in encouragement. And so when Barnabas shows up in Antioch, he sees this new work of God. He sees these men from Cyprus and Cyrene who are leading this work. He sees others among them, those who are scattered at the persecution of Stephen, who are sharing the good news with other people. And he sees this new work of God among Gentile believers. And his response is not to step in and take charge, not to step in and take credit, not to try to gain control. But Barnabas just shows up and he starts to encourage and celebrate. And he begins to affirm, I see what God is doing, and this is a good thing. He's not trying to step in, to subvert, to to lord his authority over those who are already there, but he shows up and just begins to tell those men who are there, you're doing a great job. This is what, I can't believe this is happening. This is what God had called us to do. Maybe he shows up with the story of what Peter's also experienced at Cornelius' house, affirming to them, this is something God's starting to do all over the world, and all of their hearts are filled with faith. But Barnabas offers an example to those of us who find ourselves in positions of leadership today. As a leader, when God is doing something new, and he's not doing it through you, there can be a temptation to think, I need to go over there and make sure those rookies are doing it right. Like, I need to show up and just really let them know, like, hey, I know you guys, I know you know you think what you're doing, but just so you know, like, I've been a pastor for 10 years. No big deal. Uh, But uh, I know know some stuff. Let me give you some systems. Let me give you some structures. Let me point out some pitfalls. And you might do some of that. But when you're a leader with any kind of authority, with any kind of influence, and it could be big organizational authority, it can be down to the authority you hold as a mother or father in your own home. When God is doing a new thing through a new person, those of us in positions of influence and responsibility, our first response is to show up and to encourage and celebrate. Don't come in here with your list of, let me fix that for you. Let me tell you how you can do this better. Well, one time when I was your age, God did something similar and it didn't go well. Don't come in with it. That might be down the road. What Barnabas does, he just shows up and he says, hey, listen, this is awesome. God is working. God is moving. You are doing the things that God has called you to do. Barnabas elevates those anonymous disciples to his level as a leader and says, now let's do this together. And then he does step in, and he starts to teach, and he starts to encourage, and their hearts are filled with faith. And because Barnabas is an encouraging leader, the church continues to grow as he partners with the leaders who are already there. And what I've, I've learned during my time at Christian Chapel is that this is a, a wonderful group of believers a growing group of believers filled with men and women and teenagers that God has privileged to be people of influence. And some of you, it's on a national scale. Some of you, it's on a a regional scale. Some of you, it's on a local scale. Some of you, it's in the context of an office or a school or a classroom. But he has privileged you with that gift of leadership. And our responsibility as leaders is to understand, yes, this is important, and I'm going to steward it well. And at the same time, understand, in the grand scheme, I'm still pretty anonymous, No matter how important I might be or others might tell me I am, my great-great-great-grandchildren are not going to know my name. 
right? And because of that, then I'm free to kind of steward this leadership with a little more freedom, with a little more encouragement, and with a little more invitation to others of, hey, why don't we just all do this together and see what God might do? And what you'll find is that when anonymous disciples are obedient to Jesus, they're incredibly effective. And when known leaders show up and begin to partner with them in encouragement and celebration, it accelerates the work that God is already doing. And so then Barnabas shows up. He starts to tell them, hey, you're doing a great job. I just want to encourage you to keep following Jesus. I want to encourage you to keep pursuing him with all your heart. The church continues to do that. The church continues to grow. And then as you read the story, you see apparently the job gets so big that Barnabas realizes he and the church need help. In verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. As Barnabas goes to work celebrating and encouraging all of these new believers, he recognizes the work is too big for him and the work is too big for the leaders who are there. And so he begins to empower others to join him. It says that he goes to Tarsus to get Saul. Now Saul is, is the one that you and I primarily know as the Apostle Paul. He's the author of 13 books of the New Testament. He is the most brilliant theological mind, not only of his day, but, but possibly in all of church history. He will become one of the most gifted communicators of the gospel in his generation. He will preach before governors and kings. He'll be one of the most effective missionaries that the church has seen, taking the gospel to new places among new people groups. He'll become one of the greatest apologists for Jesus as the Messiah, proving it over and over and over again, both from the scriptures and from secular culture. He will become one of the most strategic church leaders, writing letters that still guide the way we live and work in community together. And Barnabas knows Saul. He knows he's brilliant. He knows exactly what he can do and what he's capable of. And so he shows up and he says, I need more help. And he goes to get someone to empower him in a position of leadership, knowing full well that when he does, Saul is going to eclipse him. And what we know today is Barnabas, we know his story and we celebrate who he was and what he did. But he definitely exists in Saul's shadow in the minds of most Christians throughout church history. But yet Barnabas lives with the kingdom focus. He's not concerned about, hey, I, I can't bring Saul in here because he's too good. I can't bring him in here because he's too successful. But Barnabas, almost like a loving father, understands my greatest desire in life is that my sons will succeed me. My greatest desire in life is that my daughters will go farther than I've ever gone. My greatest desire is to see those coming after me stand on my shoulders and reach heights I never could have known. Barnabas inspires us to empower others and to empower them with the hope that they exceed us and push us back into anonymity where we're only known as followers of Jesus. And that, I understand the challenge of that right? because I, I face the same temptation that some of you do at times of, hey, I want to empower others. I want to invite other people into the table. I want to let them have their voice heard. I want them to exercise their gifts. And yet there's that little selfish part of my heart that says, but I just hope they're not quite as good as I am. 
Like I know someday someone else is gonna be the pastor of Christian Chapel. And when I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, I long that they will lead this church in ways I never could have dreamed or imagined. And yet the sinful part of my heart says, but maybe just be a little worse in a couple ways. So people will always miss me or they'll always remember me, right? It's the constant joke I have with my wife of, hey, when I die, you can marry somebody richer than me or more handsome than me, but he can't be both, right? You just, you gotta pick one or the other because otherwise I know I'll be completely forgotten. I just need him to be deficient in some way. And yet what we see in the early church is that Barnabas provides us an example. We're not looking for people to empower who are gonna be a slightly worse version of us. We're looking for those that God has gifted and we're gonna do everything we can to help them exceed and excel far past what we could have done. To use the gifts and the abilities that God has given them to build the church in ways that will last long after all of us are forgotten. And whether we're anonymous or we're well-known, Acts chapter 11, this passage we're looking at this morning, concludes with our new title. It says it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And so we can spend our life pursuing all kinds of titles, all kinds of significance. We can spend our life bemoaning the fact that no one knows us or acknowledges us or celebrates us. But what Acts 11 ultimately is reminding us of is, hey, you've already been given the title that lasts. You've already been given the title of significance. You've already been given the guarantee that when you invest your life in God's kingdom, it will matter now and long after you're gone. Because you are a Christian. Because you are one who belongs to Jesus Christ. And it's a term that initially was probably given to them by non-believers as a term of derision but over the centuries has been picked up as the primary identity of followers of Jesus across cultures, nations, languages, and time. We are Christians. And in that title is not a political identity. It's not a, a religious movement. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ that now flows into every aspect of our life. And so whatever your title may or may not be at work, you're first known as a Christian. Whatever your job may be as husband, wife, single, divorced, widowed, you are first a Christian. Whether you've got more kids than you know what to do with or you're still longing for God to answer your prayers, you remain a Christian. Whether you are experiencing your highest levels of success or your lowest moments of failure, you remain a Christian. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He has adopted you into his family as his son and his daughter. He has made you fully, finally, and forever his. And now that your life is attached to his kingdom, your story will continue for as long as his story goes. Among every people, among every tribe, among every language group, throughout all of time until Christ returns. These anonymous men from Cyprus and Cyrene, we still don't know them, but we benefit from their obedience today. And in the same way, when we say yes to Jesus and obey the things he's spoken to us to do, we just trust him with the results. And he works all of our lives together to weave the story of his kingdom into the place and the time where we're living. And it will continue long after we're gone. You'll stand with me. I want to pray for you. The band's going to come back. They're going to lead us in a final song this morning. Jesus, we come to you today. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder from the scriptures that no matter who we are or where we are, no matter how unseen we might feel or how heavy the weight of responsibility might be today, 
we believe that you know us and you have gone before us in this situation. You want to speak words of life and hope, words of comfort and direction. So Lord, we come today willing to be your anonymous disciples, wanting to pursue obedience over recognition, and wanting to use whatever influence you've trusted us with to encourage and empower others and see your kingdom advance in the world. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We pray if there's anyone in the room or online with us who's not yet said yes to you, today, Lord, may they hear your spirit calling them into a relationship to take on that identity as a Christian, as a son or a daughter of God, as they confess their sins and receive your forgiveness, Lord, we ask that you would make them sure and certain of their new identity and they would boldly walk into the places you're leading them and guiding them. And Lord, for those of us who said yes to you, we ask today that you would fill us again with the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us that you know exactly where we are, you know who we are, you know our frustrations and you know our successes. And you have put us at this place in this time to be part of building your kingdom in ways that will matter for eternity. So Lord, help us to see our lives with your eternal significance. Help us to understand that we have no meaningless moments, we have no meaningless relationships, but everywhere we walk and in everything we do, your kingdom is arriving and your will is being accomplished. So help us, Lord, to lift up our head, to embrace our calling, and to walk in obedience by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.